Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to Pole Position. Yes, we are now on part three. Very exciting. We are going through so, so much history on Piłsudski, so much history about Poland. We have gone across from the 1800s. We've touched the early 1900s. We've not even realistically gotten to the First World War yet because we got a little bit distracted at the end of the last podcast, talked about statues, talked about Piłsudski, talked about various different aspects, his arrests and everything else. But Alex is probably listening. And if Alex is listening... She knows we're going to talk about the First World War, but sorry, no military. We're going to talk about a slightly different aspect of the First World War. I apologize for all your military strategists. Turn your podcast off now. (laughs) Joshua, welcome back. Thank you so much. So part three, we've spoken a lot. We're going on, what, nearly two hours, close to two hours now of talking. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about Piłsudski in the First World War. I mean, we've talked about him starting up his parliamentary organisations. We haven't really talked about how the First World War began and where Piłsudski fits into all of this. So talk to us about that whole time period. Wonderful. So if you, you know, recall, you know, this World War I history is that it begins with Austria's declaration of war against Serbia, and then Germany will enter the war on the side of Austria and then go to war with Russia and France. And before we know it, Germany and Austria are at war with Russia, France, and Great Britain. Now, at the time, Pilsudski is in Krakow, and he sees this as an opportunity for the Polish military formation to enter and cross the border uh, into Russia and begin to liberate um, Polish land. So it begins with this Polish legions that are now um, operating, functioning in cooperation with the Austro-Hungarian army in this war with Russia. And there are initial successes uh, in, in, that, in that operation. Uh, we know that Pilsudski on the 6th of August, so five days after World War I begins, literally leads forces that cross into the southern part of the kingdom of Poland and he gets all the way to Kielce by August 12th. And there he declares, interestingly, a kind of Polish governing body that, that is going to now rule over these or help administer these areas of the southern of the, of the kingdom of, of Poland, right? But as listeners may know, the Russians counterattack. And by November, Pilsudski is forced to actually retreat back to the line and go back to Krakow because the Russians are now actually defeating the Austrians and they take all of Eastern Galicia and they actually approach about within 30 miles of Krakow. And that's when the line is drawn. So what we have there is now a Polish legions within the Austro-Hungarian army. And a little bit later in 1915, 
there is a massive counter offensive by the Austro-Hungarian army and the Germans, and they're successful, and they push Russia far back um, out of East Galicia beyond, and they liberate both the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania by August of 1915. So we have a a great change in the war. Uh, We have the liberation of the Kingdom of Poland. And as that front kind of solidifies where a good part of Western Russia, former Western Russia is under German and Austrian control, what we see is that there uh, are schemes to kind of discuss and Uh, of the future of Poland. And the major milestone event is that in November 1916, the Germans and Austrians announce the formation of an autonomous kingdom of Poland with Warsaw as its capital. And this announcement on November 5th, 1916 is very significant because it's the first time a great power has declared the independence of, of Poland in about 100 years And remember, it's declared by the actual powers that controlled the kingdom of Poland, now Germany and Austria-Hungary. And essentially what they're saying is that when the war ends and they believe they would defeat the Russians, that area taken from Russia, the area of the kingdom of Poland, would become a sovereign Polish state. And they began helping to form a Polish administration in Warsaw. Now, at the end of 1916, the, the center of the Polish national movement then shifts from Krakow to Warsaw. Why is that? Because Pilsudski relocates to Warsaw to take part in the formation of the Polish administration uh, that is now administering um, the new areas of Poland under German and Austrian rule. And they form something called like the Council of State. And in that Council of State, which formally comes about in January 1917, Pilsudski Uh, is actually given a a post as something like minister of war, or he heads the the war department of the the, uh, new Polish state. Now, what does this mean to have a Polish state? Of course, it's under German and Austrian rule. And essentially what they're saying is that when the war ends, they will then have a discussion of borders, and they, they are formally stating now that Poland will become a state. So this is a critical milestone event. We should note to the listeners that it was very clear that Germany and Russia were saying the borders of this new Polish state will not include Austrian Galicia and will not include Prussia. In other words, the Uh areas that Germany and Austria took in the partitions will remain. The new Poland will, right? So this is is what Pilsudski confronts. This is crazy. So what they're saying is Poland will have your, your little ditty bit from Russia, but we're not going to give you back the rest. Right. We're not giving you back Krakow, Lvov, Poznan, you know, we're keeping Brotswav. it. We're going to keep that. Our ter- we're not shifting our, the territorial integrity of our, of our, you know, domain, but we're going to give you, you know, Russia. And, and what's interesting is that before the Germans and Austrians liberated, repelled the Russians in 1914, listeners may remember that Russia declared at the end of 1914, the independence of Poland. What they said is, excuse me, not the independence. They said that, that we believe we're going to defeat the Germans and the Austrians. We will reunite the kingdom of Poland with Austrian Galicia and Prussia, and we'll create a, we'll revive the old Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, but it won't be an independent state. It'll be an autonomous region under Russian rule. But of course, when Russia is defeated, there is that's not a realistic plan. But so what I want to say there is that Pilsudski then plays this important role because he's in, he's kind of has this ministerial post in the Council of State in Warsaw. He relocates to Warsaw. So this is actually symbolically very important. I would say in his personal life, it's important because his marriage to his first wife was already deteriorating. He already had a mistress, Alexandra, who would become his second wife. And But his first wife would not give him a divorce. He had already asked those tonight. So when he relocated to Warsaw, his, his wife, Maria, remained in Krakow. It's the last time they would ever live together. But for him, in Warsaw was all, also Alexandra. So not only politically was this a major move, Warsaw part of the new government, but now he could actually be with his mistress, Alexandra, with whom he would later have his two daughters in 1918 and 1920. But what I would say, the complication here 
is that Pilsudski was constantly at odds with the two emperors. And that's because they wanted him to declare, uh, take an oath of loyalty to, to the Kaiser, uh, to the two emperors. And he refused to take that oath of loyalty. He said, I can only take an oath of loyalty to my country, Poland, but not to leaders of a, of a, of a foreign country. So that was a point of tension. The other thing is he said he demanded that in Warsaw, there not only be a government, but there be a Polish army with a Polish staff and a Polish general with Polish uniform, which they were uncomfortable with and refused. And eventually in July 1917, there was the so-called oath crisis where Pilsudski made his final stand. He will not make that oath of loyalty, take that oath of loyalty. And they arrested Pilsudski. In July 1917, they put him in Magdeburg, which was a German military prison. He would languish there for the remainder of World War I. The important thing for listeners, in my view, is to know that because he, that he refused to take that oath of, oath of loyalty, he was regarded as a prisoner of a conscience, someone who acted only in the interest of Poland and not in the interest of any foreign government. And this elevated him profoundly in the eyes of, of the Polish uh, community as a true hero, uh, someone who was who literally was a was willing to forego his own personal freedom for Poland. And he said he cannot in good conscience swear a oath of loyalty to another country. So it's interesting that for 16 months until the until the end of World War One, he's sitting in prison. But I I document how foreign media starts discovering this man for the first time. I found that the first time Pilsudski's name appears in the New York Times and in the Times of London is four days after his arrest, because they're not familiar with who this person is, but they start reporting on him. And then there's a kind of protest in Warsaw a month later, demanding that Pilsudski be freed. And I cite a New York Times uh, correspondent in Warsaw kind of interviewing these people. And this correspondent realizes, wow, this individual, this Pilsudski, he is to them the symbol of their aspirations for freedom. So so that this decision of Germany and Austria to arrest him may backfire on them. It's very interesting that it's taken them so long to actually finally mention Pilsudski's name in the foreign press. I mean, he's been making waves in uh, Central and Eastern Europe for for many years before that. Yeah. And it takes it, it to be an arrest to finally shake some feathers. That's right. And in fact, one of the things that's clear right after World War I is that the Western democracies, they're not really familiar with who this person is. The person they know is actually Roman Domowski. Why? Because, and this is important for listeners, in that time period, that 16 months between Pilsudski's imprisonment and the end of World War I, the Polish na- there was a, something called the Polish National Committee in Warsaw. It consisted of Roman Domowski, members of his party, the National Democrats and wealthy Polish uh, landowners, aristocrats, and they represented Poland in the Entente countries or the or the Western Allies. And so much so that when World War One ended, for the first three months, the Western democracies continued to recognize the Polish National Committee in Paris as the government of Poland. And we'll see that it's not until February 1919. That they actually ex- that they actually shift that recognition to Pilsudski's government in Warsaw, and one of the reasons is that these men in this national committee were absolutely opponents of Pilsudski, and and I I discovered that they were kind of putting forth a kind of misinformation campaign campaign in Paris among the Western democracies, describing Pilsudski as a radical socialist, a communist a pro-Bolshevik. And it's only till it's only Western diplomats' first encounters with Pilsudski right after World War I that they start writing reports and saying, guys, whatever was said about him back in Paris among these the Polish national community, it's not at all what I'm finding. This is a different man entirely to what I've been told he is. He's not a radical socialist. And they start saying, so it's it, their first encounters with Pilsudski are critical. But if, if you'd like to go back to this very dramatic moment, which is that right on the eve of the end of World War I. So for listeners, it's November 11th, 
1918. Pilsudski freed from prison on November 8th. And what happens is the day after that he's freed, he and one of his, and the comrade who shares that prison cell with him, which is Kazimierz Sosankowski, they're taken to Berlin, they're placed in a hotel. And then on that day, the Kaiser abdicates the throne and flees to Holland. And there's just chaos in Germany. So they explain, we can't get you back to Warsaw. So they get him back on the 10th of November, which is one day before the end of World War I. And on that, you know, he, he gets back and he's hailed as a hero. And the following day, the, the, you know, Germany signs the armistice with the Allies and World War I ends. But it's a very dramatic return of Pilsudski. I tried to describe it in my book that there's rumors that Pilsudski's been freed. And we even know that on the 9th, there were crowds at the train station in Warsaw because of the rumors, but but no one knew when he was going to arrive. So some of these people were probably waiting for hours upon hours just to get a glimpse of Piłsudski. Just to get a glimpse, because the rumors started on the 9th. They didn't know that he was blocked from coming back because of all the chaos in Germany. And, and so we have reports that on the night of the 9th, the train station was full of people, onlookers waiting for Piłsudski, right? He doesn't arrive. And then it turns out he arrives at 7 a.m. on the morning of November 10th. And there it's not known, but who greets Pilsudski at the train station, the head of the then acting authorities of Poland, the Regency Council, placed there by the Germans, Poles, right? A Polish aristocrat named Count Lubomirski greets him at the train station and is you know, overwhelmed with emotion at the moment the train pulls in and Pilsudski steps out. Because for listeners to realize that the kind of the moment and how symbolic it is that Pilsudski, when he steps foot onto the train, onto the platform, it's his first time ever standing in free, independent Poland for his whole life. And at that moment, he's 50 years old. I should just moment that. He'll turn 51 December 19. 18. But at that moment, he's 50 years old. And so for a half century, he's been fighting for, you know, this moment. And he, he arrives and he steps foot. And the acting authority, Prince Lubomirski, apparently is tearing up at that moment when he shakes Pilsudski's hand. And according to a testimony of someone who was standing next to him, as the train, before the train came, Prince Lubomirski was uh, said underneath his breath, Please, God, please, God, let Pilsudski arrive. Please, God, let Pilsudski arrive. He kept, he kept saying this under his breath because he was so excited. But, and he realized this would be the future leader of Poland. At that moment, this man, Prince Lumer, realized he no longer has legitimacy in the eyes of Poland because he was placed by the Germans. And now that Poland is about to declare independence, he no longer can be seen as as in any way a man of the people, right? He hasn't been chosen by Poles. He's been chosen by the Germans. So the arrival of Pilsudski is, is this extraordinary moment. And it's said that the Prince Lubomirski invited him into his official, apparently it was an official kind of automobile. And he and Pilsudski was then driven to the residence of, of Prince Lubomirski, who's the head of government, but that the rumors spread like wildfire around Warsaw and crowds started gathering to the point where this automobile was sighted and people stood around it. And it at times was not able to actually move forward and they had to be cleared and they were shouting long live Pilsudski long. And, and they finally gets to the residence of Prince Louis. It's very dramatic, right? There are these people like he's finally arrived, you know, long live Pilsudski. And there is when Prince Lubomirski says, we are going to hand over to you the title of commander-in-chief of the, of the armed forces. And, and Pilsudski will, will accept that. Now, that's November um, 10th. And the following day is when the actual um, war ends and Poland declares independence. And that's an official announcement of the Regency Council that Pilsudski will is now commander-in-chief of the armed forces. I think that's such an incredible, incredible moment in Polish history. I just want to think back to fighting your whole life to see your country freed, where you've undergone op- oppression, your language, intelligentsia, libraries, schooling, everything, everything your whole identity is all about. 
has been completely and utterly taken away from you. And I want our listeners to sit down and think about that. To the Americans, imagine having everything that makes you an American taken away. To the Brits, everything you can't, you can no longer speak English. Okay, you're being forced to speak another language. All your books are gone. Everything you could think of is completely and utterly disappeared. And this man finally stood on the 10th of November, 1918, on free land. I just cannot imagine. For the first time in his life. Exactly. For the first time in his life. He's just, I would have loved to have experienced that moment. To see Poland truly being free 123 years later. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Right. That's the extraordinary thing. And I think it's also amazing, the personal story. And it almost gives me the chills to talk about this, which is that listeners may want to know that Pilsudski was 50 and his mistress, Alexandra, had had their first child. So it's his first child, a daughter, Vonda, is born, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, Vonda, sorry. Vonda was born eight months before that. It was while Pilsudski was in prison and the Germans wouldn't allow postcards to arrive in the prison from his from his mistress uh, to announce that the child has been born, although he could figure it out. So it's not only that he arrives in free Poland, but he will on that day see his daughter for the first time in his life. So he's getting through all these formalities. And at the end of that meeting with Prince Lubomirski, he's then shown to an apartment that's been designated for him. And there are people crowding around the apartment. And apparently he goes out into the balcony and gives a small, you know, address of the crowd to thank them. But on his mind is how can he escape to go to see his mistress? She's living on the, in the suburb of Warsaw to get there, to meet for the first time, his eight month old daughter. So after all that, he's finally able to kind of scape out a back area of the apartment building and find his way with transportation to start going out of Warsaw and get to to uh, Alexander, and he does. And apparently when he gets there, there were also crowds there waiting for him. And because of that, he has to get through the crowds and get to the door, knock on the door. And then his, his wife doesn't want kind of the crowds to see this exchange. So she has like a friend of hers there open the door and invite him to go upstairs. Uh, and then she embraces him and then hands him Vonda, uh, the eight-month-old. And then Alexander describes in her memoirs that moment where Pusitsky held his daughter in his arms and they looked into each other's eyes. And she she has a kind of a beautiful paragraph describing what she remembered about that moment, about the interaction. Because she explains her that it was had been his dream his whole life to have have children, but it hadn't happened yet. I love this. It's such a personal moment in Piłsudski's history, and you get to see it through the eyes of, uh, at the time, his mistress, and, and eventually, eventually his wife. But yeah. you know, we've been talking about this incredible moment, very powerful moment. But now Piłsudski has, uh, let's just say, a very, very big task because you know this is a nation that has had nothing, zero. You know, you're trying to reform and create a whole new government, you need military and economy and everything else that comes under this flag of creating a nation, a state. It's incredibly hard. I mean, how does Piłsudski do this? How do you, where, how do you even start doing this? It is extraordinary. And, and I, I quote some uh, biographers who were much closer to the time, especially those that appeared in the late 1920s and 1930s who described this moment. And it really is said that he may have been the only person at the moment who could have stepped in and filled the vacuum of the, you know, listeners try to kind of, you know, uh, understand that three states had just collapsed on that day. 
Russia, oh, three empires, uh, the German Empire and Austria and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Poland is now carved out of those three states, but state, but in lands that have been devastated by World War I. So we have almost no infrastructure. We have three different sets of laws and we have three different currencies. And, and now he's supposed to piece together a government, try to revive the economy to employ people. And it is an enormous task because what, what's happened is I had mentioned to listeners that on November 11th, the Regency Council, the acting authorities, name him commander in chief. But on the 14th, they realize how they are entirely illegitimate in the eyes of the, of the Polish population. So they voluntarily dissolve themselves and announce that Pilsudski has been given the dual title of head of state and commander in chief. And they are now, and they've now formally dissolved. So on the 14th of November, 1918, he literally has absolute control. He could have done many different things, right? But what does he do? He immediately, he acts in a very transparent way. So as to maybe counter suspicions that he may decide to kind of take total power to become a dictator because all power has been placed in his hands. And I truly believe the reason they did that, and you can read and I cite recollections of the Regency Council members who talk about that moment. Why did they make that decision? And particularly Prince Lubomirsky, whom I mentioned before, he was the head of that council in his recollection says that Pilsudski was the only man they felt could be trusted with that amount of power because they knew in their heart of hearts that he had one thing and one thing one interest in mind is that, and that is the good and welfare of Poland. He would have nev- never abused that power for self-aggrandizement, for wealth. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. That is to say, he immediately announced the formation of a provisional government on the 18th of November. And on that day, they started working on an election law. 10 days later, they announced the first election law at the end of November. And there they set a date for elections. And I think that's very important. There was no delay on that. They said on January 26, 1919, there will be fair and free elections to independent Poland's first parliament. And then he, and then he, he declared on that day that when that freely elected parliament convenes their first time, he will step down as head of state because he said he is, he, he's aware that he is not a legitimate, that the only stamp of legitimacy on a head of state is if the parliament, which is freely elected, chooses him, right? So so in fact, um, that is exactly what happens, which is on January 26, 1919, there are free and fair elections. Nobody's contested that they were. The parliament is formed. And on the, the 10th of February, Pilsudski gives the opening address in a very emotional moment that I try to cite in length, addressing reborn Poland's first freely elected assembly, which is, this is a critical state. And what he does is he, he steps down as head of state. In other words, he fulfilled his promise. He walks out of the chamber and then the parliament takes a vote on who they want as head of state and they unanimously reinstate Pilsudski. But it's only at that moment that he has the stamp of legitimacy in the world because it's it's the actual government that's chosen him. And so that was actually a, a critical moment. So he remains head of state, commander chief of the armed forces, and he has a coalition government with Ignacy Paderewski as prime minister, who is very much favored by the Western democracies, uh, someone who speaks fluent English, fluent French. He, 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 um, he has a very positive image in, in the Western democracies, this internationally renowned classical pianist. But I think what's important also is that that freely elected assembly then goes about drafting the country's first constitution. And so it's done all in a way, in a proper way. And what we can say is that while Pesutsky was given the keys to absolute power, what he proceeded to do was a speedy transition to democracy and to create democratic institutions, including, by the way, an independent judiciary you know, rule of law, complete civic freedoms for all minority rights. Now, what was not in his hands was the constitution, because 
Remember, that's drafted by the parliament. So if I, I'm just going to pause there and say that that is issued in 1921. Okay. The reason we're going we're gonna to stop before we get to 1921, because there's other, okay. so many other things happening. This is such a manic time post-war. We're going to come to the, the, the putting down arms thing in a second, but at the same time, you've got, you've got Treaty of Versailles, You've got the Paris Peace Conference. Oh gosh, you have yeah. so many nations joining, reforming, land borders are moving, new nations are be creating, other nations are not being created, aka Ukraine hasn't got a voice Absolutely. in any of Absolutely. this at all. We're not even going to start talking about China because that's a whole other kettle of fish that's happening far, far away. But... I mean, what is happening with the Paris Peace Conference? What is happening with the Treaty of Versailles? Why, where is Piłsudski? What is he doing? Is he participating in this? Is he pro? Is he against? What's happening? So all these factors are in play. And I have to say that that if we go back to the tension between Piłsudski government in Warsaw and the Polish National Committee in Paris, right? Which, by the way, kind of lasts and functions until around March uh, 1919, but after they agree to a coalition government in war, so they don't really have any much function anymore, you know, as an independent body. But one of the things that Roman Domowski demanded that Pilsudski refused to concede on, and it makes sense, is that he demanded that he would have exclusive representation rights at the Treaty of Versailles, that there'd be this Pilsudski's government in Warsaw, but, but Domowski and only Domowski and, and his men would represent Poland at the Paris Peace Conference. Now, because of negotiations and Pilsudski's kind of skills, he he got them to concede on critical points, which is that Pilsudski's government will appoint something like half the members of the Polish delegation so that they'll be represented by pro-government for like kind of like pro-Pilsudski or those who are from the government. And then Domowski and his men can also be part of that. So there were, there was a kind of, uh, you could say a coalition uh, in Paris of, of the Polish delegation. And um, there, you know, they they fought for the the allies, the, the victorious allies, to recognize Poland's Western border with Germany. And they really achieved that. So that was actually um, a very successful moment for the Poles to put forth their demands that the corridor that gave Poland access to the Baltic Sea be recognized. Now, what was disappointing for the Piłsudski government is that the German-Polish conflict over Danzig was really so intense that the Western allies decided not to give that up to Poland, but to make it an international, uh, to, to make it a League of Nations uh, city. So a separate kind of city, uh, autonomous city of Danzig. But the, but the concession to Poland is that only the Poles would have na- naval rights around that port of Danzig. So the German-Polish conflict was in full swing there in the sense that Germans were very clear. Uh, they will not ever recognize, or as of now, they have no plans to recognize their border with Poland as is, that they want that open for discussion. But the allies put their foot down, at least at the Treaty of Versailles, and and place that border there. But we have these unresolved issues still, the, the city of Danzig. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As a what they call what the free city of Danzig under League of Nations auspices, 
But in general, we can say the, the Treaty of Versailles is, is, is a success for, for Poland. I mean, these issues, these border issues, they carry on all the way through the interwar period and, of course, explode in 1939 with the invasion of, of Poland by Germany and uh, Soviet Russia. I don't know really what to say in this sense, because we were, I actually didn't put this in the questions, but we haven't even touched on Ukraine at all. And Piłsudski's advocacy to create Ukraine as a, as a state. So I think considering what we're going through now politically and Putin and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, I think it'll be worth for our listeners to understand how much Ukraine was actually advocated for by Pilsudski. Yeah. So I agree fully with, with that, that we really need to discuss that because I think that Pilsudski was a true visionary who was ahead of his times. And in 1920, he signed an agreement with General Petlura, who was a Ukrainian general. And at the end of April, the Ukrainian and Polish forces mounted an invasion or a campaign to take Kiev from the Bolsheviks. And on the 7th of May, 1920, they actually entered Kiev and they declared the independence of Ukraine. And if you read the text of that independence proclamation, it's really extraordinary. It's even kind of emotional to read it now because of what is contained in that. Because Pilsudski, uh, who played a role in drafting that, and it's both a, it's kind of a Polish-Ukrainian document because they were issued by both parties, is saying that the independence of Ukraine, we declare, is indispensable for the security of Europe and for Poland, and that it'll bring it'll bring it'll bring freedom to this part of Europe, and it'll defend Europe against Russian encroachment or what he called annexationist tendencies, but that, that, that this Ukrainian border uh, with, with um, Russia, because they, you know, they declared independence, will form the eastern bulwark of what he called Western civilization. And wherever that, that border lies, you know, on the other side will be Russia. And in his view at that time, there was only a Bolshevik Russia or a Tsarist Russia. There, ha- there isn't really a democratic Russia. But that advocacy cost him hugely. I, I want to emphasize this to listeners. And that is that the Western democracies practice, in my view, an early form of appeasement. They were absolutely opposed to Pilsudski's advocacy for the independence of Ukraine to the point where they were saying the mere, the mere concept of an independent Ukraine is constitutes incitement against Russia. And we don't want to anger Russia, right? Don't provoke Russia. That's what they were saying to Pilsudski. And he actually, interestingly, turned to the Western democracies who were hotly criticizing and said, you don't understand the nature of the Russian polity. It is, an, he said, it is an imperialist, annexationist culture. And, and you need to push it back to its ethnic frontiers. Now, Listeners may know that something like three weeks later, the Bolsheviks mounted a counteroffensive and both Pilsudski and the Ukrainians had to withdraw speedily. And the Red Army was able to get all the way to the outskirts of Warsaw. And there was a moment in August 1920 where it was believed that Warsaw actually may fall and that the whole of Europe is threatened with a kind of Bolshevik invasion for, you know, and even there was a a communication between the Russian general on the ground, his name was Tukashevsky, to Moscow, in which he said that if Warsaw falls, it'll become a bridge to Berlin, Paris, and London for a union of Soviet socialist republics, one single Soviet. And so, by the way, that was leaked and Europe freaked out and they realized that Poland is the land bridge between Russia and the West. We Where must... have we heard this before? Yes. We've, wasn't it? Wasn't this quite a recent one, again, yeah. brought up somewhere yeah. by some <laughs> Russian politician? Uh-huh. Oh, it's, my God. It, we repeat history and it, words are being repeated over and over. Oh, it's incredible. I almost was thinking that some amazing statements by President Zelensky of Ukraine today in the last three months could almost word for word 
be exactly what Pilsudski said in 1920. Because what he said is, is that Russia will expand up to and threaten Europe if you do not allow an independent Ukraine. And he said that Ukraine will be the allow for the spread and flourishing of, of democratic uh, institutions in that part of Europe. But if it falls to Russia, then, then actually, then you're going to see a diminution of democratic institutions. So, we, so he said, for the security of Europe, we have to support the independence of Ukraine. And the French and the British replied that Pilsudski is reckless. He's a destabilizing force. He's causing conflict with Russia. He's inciting Russia. He is a, he, you know, he's not good for Europe now. And that's when Pilsudski turned to them and essentially said, you guys haven't spent your whole life in czarist Russia. And in Russia. you don't actually understand enough about Russian culture and its internal pot to know what's happening here. Your politics is actually the destabilizing force. It's not my politics. You know, by you saying you're going to suppress Ukrainian independence, you're going to cause wreak havoc in the future. So I would say he was like a, a visionary because, because isn't it true that essentially when this conflict began in February, 2022, there was a consensus of the Western world that, that the territorial integrity of Ukraine plays a pretty critical role in the balance of power in Europe, right? That, you know, there's, it's kind of a buffer between Russia and, and the West. We, we, we really don't want Russia expanding its frontiers right up to the border of the European Union, meaning right up to Poland is what they're saying. And Ukraine is that central, that, that central you know, bulwark against Russian encroachment. That's exactly what Pilsudski said 102 years ago. And literally nobody listened. So that's where I think that he was a visionary, that he saw the future in the sense that he had so much ability to see the present and the implications of any single shift in, in, in military balance of power, um, that he could see this, that, that letting Ukraine uh, you know, kind of uh, collapse is, is really not good for Europe. How does uh, the post-Bolshevik war end? I mean, I think we're going to tie up on this question. Sure. And then we're going to bring you in part four. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I want to say it's, it's, it's one of my favorite topics. I started off in part one saying that the first encounter I ever had with the subject of Pilsudski was as an undergraduate when I was assigned to write a paper on the Polish Soviet war. And so now much, many years later, when I wrote this biography, Pilsudski, I can say almost my most, I was most engaged in trying to reconstruct this war and how we can understand the Polish victory over the Red Army, which is a very rare thing in the 20th century, which is, in other words, a complete victory over the Russian armed forces and forcing their surrender. I had a professor once who said it's the only definitive armed defeat of the Russians uh, in the 20th century, but I haven't really thought about that. But you're absolutely right. So essentially, the moment that the Russians, the Red Army arrives at the gates of Warsaw, this is August 16th, 1920. At that point, Pilsudski is being essentially attacked from all sides, saying that Poland could fall and it's all your fault. Why did you do the, the Kiev campaign? That was so irresponsible because all you did was was provoked the Russians and you invited them in and they thought Poland would fall. But Pilsudski, you know, the story is, very, is kind of one also of drama, which is that Pilsudski separated himself from all his generals. He isolated himself for 72 hours and he meticulously went over a battle plan. He emerges and comes up with a battle plan. He calls a meeting with his three top military advisors he asks them all their opinion. One of them, he decides, has very good ideas, and he asks him to draw up a plan. Pilsudski then amends in major ways the plan, and the two of them announce the plan for a counteroffensive against Russia. It was Pilsudski's assessment of all the possible weak links of the Russian front and where the Poles could counterattack. And on the 16th of August, they mounted this surprise, massive counteroffensive that somehow, somehow um, 
caught the Red Army, the Russian army, so off guard that the Polish army was able to encircle them and force them into retreat, full retreat by the 18th. And the Poles started pursuing the Red Army that was now in rapid defeat, rapid withdrawal. So that by, I guess, we're thinking now October of 1920, with hugely strong pressure from the Western democracies, Pilsudski agreed to an armistice with the Bolshevik Russia. Now, it's said that he could have gone all the way to Leningrad and all the way to Moscow, but the Western democracies, he wouldn't have gone all the way to Moscow, but his, his goal was to go up to the line of, of pre-partition Poland, but the Western democracies convinced him to stop at a certain point. And so in October 1920, they signed an armistice and Poland gets wide swaths of Western Russia, way beyond the frontiers that they administered when Poland became independent. So not all the way to the borders of 1772, but he got what is today Western Belarus, Western Ukraine. And that armistice line ended up becoming the final demarcation line between Poland and uh, Soviet Russia at the Treaty of Riga in March 1921. But I can say that if, and I cite a lot of this in the book, which is if you go into press accounts from French, British, and American newspapers after the successful counteroffensive, Piłsudski is literally hailed as the savior, not just of Europe, but of, of Western civilization. He is, I mean, the praise for him is unbelievable because the feeling is that if, if he had failed, I mean, listeners should remember that in 1920, Germany was demilitarized. It would not have had the ability to defend itself against a Red Army encroachment. So Germany would have fallen quite quickly. And we don't know what have happened, but it would have been a major Bolshevik kind of offensive to take over all of Europe because they started saying how they how this is going to be the trigger for a world uh, communist revolution. That's what they were, the rhetoric that was being circulated um, in Russia at the time. So the fact that Pilsudski kind of saved Europe from the Bolsheviks and then defeated them. And I think listeners should should also realize that part of the Pilsudski legend and what makes him kind of at the center of Polish national memory as their founding father is that he personally led Polish forces in the battle against the Bolsheviks. It wasn't that he stood in a command post in Warsaw and directed his troops. He was on the battlefield uh, leading his forces in in the war against the Red Army. And I think that's part of what leads, don't you think, Poles to feel that, I mean, this is a man who who was a genuine hero in that sense. I mean, the cult of Piłsudski is far better than, for example, the cult of Hitler or the cult of Stalin or, God forbid, the cult of Mao. You know, I know that in Polish, Polish schools would have the photograph of painting or whichever way you wanted to say of Piłsudski on their walls because he was. He was a national hero. He was a man who not only liberated Poland, but he defeated the Bolsheviks and has created this this new government, this new this new Poland. Oh, absolutely! It's interesting to look at early biographies of Pilsudski that came out in for me in English. In one is in 1931. It was by a British historian named Robert Macrae, like M A C H R A Y. And the praise for Pilsudski is interesting. In 1932, it's it's about 12 years out from the war. They're really pointing to that as the central significance of this figure. Now, this is being written when Pilsudski is still alive, was that he saved Europe from a Bolshevik uh, takeover. And they're, they're trying to emphasize in there that it's not just that Poland did it, but it's this singular kind of, they're using the word military uh, uh, genius, who was able to come up somehow with a battle plan in consultation with his, with one of his chief generals to to repel the the Russian armed forces when they were at they were at much lower numbers in terms of of equipment and men that that's why and I, I want li- listeners to know that the term today that is that is used in Poland <clears throat> and also in all textbooks even in English is miracle on the Vistula. That's the term for the Battle of Warsaw of 1920. Um, but I, I, I find this 
very fascinating about the, the, the kind of controversy of Pilsudski, which is that in writing this book, I discovered that the term miracle of the Vishta was coined by Pilsudski's opponents in 1920 because these were, would be members of the National Democratic Party because they wanted to say that it wasn't Pilsudski who was instrumental in the defeat of the Red Army. It was a higher power. It was, a, a, a relig- it was kind of a miracle. It wasn't Pilsudski. Some miracle descended on Poland and allowed them to defend them. But it didn't have anything to do with Pilsudski. I, 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 and I found that fascinating because we think of that as a, I, I never thought of that as a term that could have been used against him. I actually thought it was a term that we used for him, but there we right, go. for I, him. I learned, but it really, I learned something new today. Uh-huh. Oh, that's, oh, I'm glad because it's, it is an interesting thing that now that's the term, but I mean, that's more like a complete, like, you know, footnote of the period, but his opponents who, by the way, who were saying right on the eve of that counteroffensive that Pilsudski had destroyed the country. He had been reckless, right? Now that he defeated the Red Army, they were trying to find another a, a way, very delicate way to to basically put the basically to somehow to you know undermine his his victory as having anything to do with him, but something to do with some with you know other forces. So, Josh, we have to pause for now, only because we're going to come back to part four. So. Everybody has to wait just that little bit longer. We'll get part four ready to you. We're going to be talking about some really interesting things. You know, we've got a coup coming up, a couple of affairs, some foreign affairs, might even talk about Goebbels down the line, and also a little bit of modern day politics because everything kind of intertwines at this point. So, Josh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will see you soon. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next part. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.